Oh, Father, these truths that we've sang so far are a sermon in themselves, several sermons, and I, I thank you that they are true. That what we just sang is true because of you. Because of your love to us, your grace to us, your mercy. It's true. Praise be your name. Praise be your name. And so... This morning, I pray that as we look into your word, that you would show us your gospel even more clearly from your word. So I pray first, if there be anyone here now who is wrestling with their own guilt and shame over sins, unconfessed sin, that we would take a moment right now and silently before you, before your throne, confess those sins before you to get them out of the way, to clear the path before you so that we may sit at your feet unagitated, at rest, and listen. So Lord, now I, I simply want to take a, a brief moment of silence and give us all a chance to do just this. Father, I thank you that when we confess our sins to you, that you are faithful and just to not only forgive us our sins, but to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. You are a most gracious and merciful God. I thank you. Thank you that it's you. Thank you that it's you. So please, hear, please bless the preaching of your word now. Make it clear. Make it rest richly in our hearts. Guide me and constrain me now, I pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, this morning we look at Psalm 4 in our brief series of the first 10 Psalms. And once again, as, as has happened so often, so often since I began preaching, I, I cannot imagine a better passage for us to consider right now. Right now in our present situation in our, in our culture, and, and, and I think that the way that I understand that many of you are feeling, the way I feel sometimes, I, I cannot think of a more instructive and compelling passage for us, because everybody is angry today. Everybody's angry. It is not a matter of whether or not you are angry, it's just a matter about, about what. Everybody's angry. Um, and so it's not a matter of whether you are, but about what. And then it's a matter of what we do with that anger. What do we do with that anger? Whether it's something destructive or constructive. And, and this, passage, this passage has at its center the issue of anger. And I cannot think of a better passage of Scripture for gaining wisdom in understanding anger and getting ourselves oriented in, in a right position to do something constructive about it. Because our world today runs on anger, runs on anger. It is, it is the fuel of civil discourse or uncivil discourse. It is, it is how we do social media. It's often how we communicate with each other, even in the church. It is everywhere. We don't under, exactly understand the situation behind when David wrote this, but it's most probable that he wrote it around the same time as Psalm 3 that we heard last week after his adultery with Bathsheba. 
after he had had her husband Uriah, the, the best of men, killed to cover up his sin, and after his own son Absalom had tried to take the throne from him, his own father, that's what's happening probably right now when he writes this. Absalom has, a, has an army arrayed against his own father to take the throne. So here's David. Here's David, as guilty as the day is long, crying out to God. And in this respect, David himself represents us. We too are a guilty people. The reason why we are so angry as a culture is that we are so awash in guilt and we're just projecting our own guilt onto everybody else. (laughs) That's what's happening. Um, Some things never change, you know. Pain in childbearing has changed, praise God. Pain in dentistry has changed over the years since this was written, praise God. But the human heart has not progressed at all. It is the same. Um, David here shows us a a better way. So what I want, want to do today is to walk through the psalm from start to finish and then go back and pull out some key principles and then apply it to our situation today. So we should begin by noting what is called the superscript. In my, in my translation, the, the lowercase capitalized words at the top of the psalm. These superscripts were added later, undoubtedly, by scribes, but it, it tells us that this psalm and last week's psalm uh, were meant to be sung by a choir with stringed instruments during the worship of God's people in church. Yes, even Psalm 3, verse 7 For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. That was sung in church. And the joke here does not fall on Scripture. We're laughing at us. We're laughing at us there. The joke falls on us. How different, how vapid, how unrealistic, how superficial is so much of modern worship music. When we compare this, praise God, what we sang today, I I could not have asked for better songs to be scheduled today. But, but, how much of modern worship music deviates so far, so far from what the scriptures actually say ought to be sung, the Psalms. Um, And that our ancient forebears actually did sing praise songs, celebrating how God punches his enemies in the mouth. (laughs) Remarkable. As much as they got wrong, they understood well enough that in the garden, what happened there in the Garden of Eden was that a rebel force invaded and is now occupying God's territory, God's creation. This life then, this whole life is a battle between these two sides that were established in the garden, the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of Eve. And as God said then, the serpent will bruise the heel of Eve's offspring, but he, the offspring of Eve, will bruise the serpent's head. And all those who are in him, God's people, are bruised. We are bruised in this life, but we're doing bruising too. Being bruised, we bruise. But first, the being bruised part. David opens the psalm by crying out to God in a way that we might at first find almost inappropriate. You know, it almost sounds like an like a angry parent. You know, answer me when I call, O oh God. But for all that David has done, we might ask, What leg does he have to stand on to talk to God this way? To to be so bold as to begin his prayer without any pleasantries. Answer me when I call, O God. 
Well, the, the answer is, it's not just, oh God, it is answer me when I call, oh God, of my righteousness, of my righteousness. David had a righteousness, but it was not a righteousness of his own. That ship had sailed. That ship had sailed. David used his high rank, his, his elite status at the top of the heap of the culture in the most abusive and ugly way. The most condemnable behavior came from David and his position at the top of the heap. But David does have a righteousness at this point when he writes this. One from, not from himself, from God. He says, O God of my righteousness. So what is David thinking here? Why does he say this? Well, the wording goes all the way back to Abraham, from whom all of Israel descended. God promised Abraham that he would have offspring that would number like the stars in the sky. Abraham, who had not yet had any children, <laughs> and who was old, old. And in Genesis 15, it says there that Abraham believed God's promise, and God credited it to him as righteousness. In a fallen world, no one can stand before God. So God substitutes faith for righteousness this merciful God. And God had promised David that there would never lack an offspring of his on his throne. Even now, even now after David has done all these things and David believed God and is still believing that promise of God and God even now credits to David that faith as righteousness despite all that he's done. Thus David here in faith refers to God as the source and the supplier of his righteousness. God has given him the righteousness needed for David, despite all that he has done, to come into the very throne room of God and speak to God in this bold way. David here is acting by faith, by faith alone. And so then he reminds himself, he reminds himself not only that God is the supplier and the source of his righteousness, he then reminds himself out of God's merciful, kind, and gracious nature to him how in the past he has given him relief from all of his troubles, verse 1. And then he simply asks God to be gracious, to give him what he clearly does not deserve, and to hear his prayer. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Now, the rest of the psalm is really funny because there's no more asks in the rest of the psalm. In a way, David's done praying. Now David speaks in other directions. David has seemingly gotten all that he needed by looking up to God. He's good. He's good. And now all that's left is to speak no longer vertically, but horizontally. So he speaks, verse 2, to the men to the men, or as your footnote might put it, to men of rank, men of rank, the elites, the high-ranking officials of the nation, presumably those that Absalom had recruited to join his side and who were now angry about the situation and were following Absalom in rebellion against David, the king. How long, David says, are you going to shame me instead of honoring me? After all, I'm still king. I'm still king. How long are you going to love to hear vain words? Vain meaning words spoken, but, but nothing is said. Nothing is said. They have, no, they have no weight to them. They're worthless, powerless. How long will you seek after lies, speaking and being led by lies? 
Then there's a selah at this point. Again, the selah was probably added later. Maybe a musical term. Scholars are, are we, we don't know exactly all the functions of the selah, but we do think that it was a musical pause meant not only for the musicians to pause, but for the listener to pause and just reflect on what's been said so far. So, there's a pause. David says, how long are you going to do this? Because, verse 3, the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. For himself. And therefore, the Lord hears me when I call to him. You need to understand this. No matter what you do, no matter what you do, the Lord will hear me when I call to him. You can't, you can't beat that. You can't beat that because I am godly. And if you're reading, and if you're slowing down well enough, and you, you might ask yourself, wait a second, did David just call himself godly? <laughs> you just read that list of things that he did, and David just called himself godly? Yes. Yes. Later, yes, in Psalm 32, David will write this. First six verses of Psalm 32, but I want to focus on the last two. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit, not perfection, honesty. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. Have you ever felt that way? Here we go, verses 5 and 6. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Have you ever felt that? Therefore, let everyone who is godly, who is the godly as defined by this psalm, the godly are those who offer a prayer to you at a time when you may be found surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach them. A prayer for what? A prayer that, verse 5, acknowledges sin to you, that does not cover iniquity, that says, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, that I may be cleansed. Those in a fallen world, those are the only people who are the godly. Because as the Bible will tell us later, as Paul, Paul will say, there is no unrighteous, no, not one. <laughs> Perhaps it's just that David knows us better than most of us. <laughs> so, in a fallen world, the godly are those with sense enough to acknowledge their sin, to receive forgiveness. Back to Psalm 4, verse 6, these are the godly. That's certainly David, and, and thus he says, Though I've done much wrong, God hears me when I call to him, not because of a righteousness of my own, but one that's given to me by faith to God, and you're insane to go up against this. How long will your insanity last because crazy is not a good long-term strategy? How long are you going to do this? There's actually an element of love here towards his enemies. And then like a father, he instructs them with the wisdom of the ages. Verse 4, yes, be angry. You, you have reason to be angry at me of all people. That's not in dispute. There are things to be angry and displeased about, about the present situation. Be angry, but in your anger, do not sin. Do not sin. Instead, <laughs> paraphrasing here, David says, instead, bottle it up. 
Stuff it. Stuff it down and ponder it on your beds. Ponder, ponder what you are displeased about silently. And then again, here, perfectly timed, here's another Selah at the right moment. Ponder it silently. Reflect on your anger. Re- reflect on it until you know the right thing to do. Don't fly off the handle. Stuff it until you know the right thing to do. And the way that you will find that is the same way that I did at the beginning of this psalm, by first looking vertically instead of horizontally. Verse 5, what does that look like? Worship God. Offer right sacrifices. Get to church on Sunday. Get to church on Sunday and orient your heart towards the God of the universe vertically first. Orient yourself to him and then put your trust, your faith in the Lord not in the man who comes along and who has successfully, whoever can successfully co-opt your anger to draw you to himself like a Pied Piper so that you follow him along wherever he leads you. Trust in the Lord. Then David reflects, verse 6, on how with all the bad things going on at that time in Israel, I mean, total turmoil. You can imagine this. Two, Two competing kings, two armies, all the same people, you know, it's like our civil war, just t- total turmoil. And there are many people at that time who, who would say, as you hear today, oh, if only someone would come along and show us some good instead of everything I see on the, you know, the Jerusalem nightly news. Oh, that someone good would come along and solve this big mess. Oh. But again, David orients himself vertically, vertically first. He remembers again something about God, verse 7, that even if Absalom came through with every one of his promises of grain and grain and wine for everybody, everybody, if I get to be king, even if all of those promises became true, it would never come even close to matching the joy that God himself had put into his heart. And David is able to say this to the world He's able to say this sincerely and objectively, not even close, not even close. So David remembers God, and then verse 8, he shuts off the news, and he goes to sleep. (laughs) Sweet sleep. His circumstances have not changed. The nation is still in a handbasket, headed one place. (laughs) Things are still really bad. Things are still in utter turmoil, but he has remembered God, the God who was actually there, the God of the gospel. And in faith, David can go to sleep, can rest. He rests, he rested, he slept instead of tossing and turning in anger. And anger. Okay, so that's the psalm, but we need to consider anger because, again, it's the centerpiece of the psalm Oftentimes, in Hebrew literature, the the point of a passage you'll find in the center of the psalm, not at the end. And that's what's happening here. Because everyone has anger, and therefore everyone has an anger problem. Everyone has an anger problem. Because everyone has anger, and everyone has the problem of knowing whether that's right anger or sinful anger, and then what to do with it. (laughs) Everybody's got an anger problem. And anger, we see from this passage we need to note first, is not necessarily wrong or sinful. Did you know that? Um, Verse 4, one can be angry and not sin. 
What matters is not the verb, but the object of the verb. What makes anger right or wrong is not its existence, but its object. Its object. If I see a grown man walking down the street, if I see a grown man punching an old, you know, an elderly lady in the face, it would be grossly immoral of me to not be angry about that. Right? It would be wrong. It would be righteous for me to be angry about that and to do the same thing to him to defend her. And there again, my punching him in the tooth and knocking out his tooth would be righteous in that case. Again, it's not the verb, it's the object of the verb that defines whether the verb is right or wrong. Now, we must also realize that anger takes a lot of different forms. It's not just a flying off of the handle, a rage. Anger can look like cool seething or a cold distancing. But regardless, it's always a a displeasure with how things are. I have a friend who for the last six years, the last six years, has said the exact same words to me of displeasure about the exact same politician every single time I see him. (laughs) He is calm, he is measured, he never raises his voice, and he's full of anger. He's full of anger. Um, So the question is not whether or not we are angry, but at what, and then what will we do with it? Something destructive or constructive? Now, this turns again on, of course, on something that's going on inside of us, in our hearts, of course. So God is very concerned. Anger comes out of the heart, Jesus says, and James will say later. Um, Thus, God is very concerned with our inner virtue, with our inner virtue. But he is just as concerned with our outer response to the world, and the two go together. Some churches completely emphasize the the inner virtue and never talk about the, the outward response. And some churches always talk about them bad ones out there and what we need to do to get them bad ones, them ones out there. Never mind the fact that we totally lack virtue in here. But the two go together, always. Two sides of the same coin. The inner virtue, the inner change of the heart is what enables us to have a constructive response to them ones out there. So we might ask ourselves, when when David says, be angry and do not sin, who is he talking to? And the answer is, yes. (laughs) Everybody. Them ones out there and us ones in here. So, how does David get oriented for this? How does David get oriented to have a right response, to have a right, clean anger, and then to get oriented for a right response? Well, it all turns on his first step, on his first step in this. The other day, uh, Isaac and I went to an A's game, and uh, of course it was the A's outfielder that did this. He made the fatal mistake of, uh, of a taking, on a line drive, taking his first step forward, you know, and what, ha- what happened? The line drive went right over his head, and you know, like, Six runs scored on the same play or something, you know, just, just typical A's. But, um, but this is the thing. The first thing you learn about playing the outfield is that if your first step is back, the ball will never go over your head. And David's example to us here is that in order for anger to not get over our heads, our first step must, must always be vertical toward God when we experience displeasure about this or that. 
It must be towards God. And if inevitably, if we come to God in faith, we will be oriented by two truths that we discover when we come before God and we, we see what God does and we listen to what God says. And we will be given two truths, reminded of two truths there that David is reminded of here that, that become like a, a north and a south on a compass that will, that will never let us go wrong, that will always orient us properly in our anger. First, the north is mercy. Mercy. David reminds himself as much as anyone there in verse 1 of the mercy shown to him by God, how God gave him the crown and righteousness, and how God has not rescinded his promise to him, even in all of David's sin. David remembers how God had given him relief instead of wrath. David is only David, the great David, because of God, because of his mercy. This is why David tells the men of rank, the elites, the men of high position, verses 4 and 5, as just as justified as your anger is, bottle it up until you know how to do something constructive with it. And, and the way you'll know it is by offering right sacrifices, by, by first coming to God and realizing how much you yourself need the mercy of God. When you look at the sacrifices made before God and you'll see how seriously God takes sin, let, let me tell you how much you need the mercy of God. I can tell you because I know me. I know about you because I know about me and because I know what happened at the cross. I know that Jesus hung there, stripped bare, ashamed, asphyxiating. And when he called, when he called, God did not answer him. That's how serious sin is. The righteous one treated as sin itself, the righteous for the unrighteous. When he needed relief, he was only given a sponge of gall to drink. God was not gracious to him, and God chose to not hear his prayer on the cross. But by the will of God, that was so that that would never be true for the people of God, for you and me. That you and I could enter into this psalm and experience the same closeness to, to God that David himself so confidently enjoys. Despite all of his sin, despite all of his sin, the greater David suffered all his honor turning to shame so that we could experience an honor, a mercy, and an honor that we do not deserve. So the first truth that we see here when we, when we step, take that first step vertically to God is we see mercy we realize how serious sin was and how much mercy has been lavished upon us. If you've never received this mercy, I implore you to do so. Trust in Christ. He suffered for your sins. Your sins. All who put their faith in Him are forgiven and more than that, honored. Honored. God does more than forgive us our sins. He also redeems and restores us to the place that we were meant to be as God's vice regents over all creation. It says vice kings, a kingdom of priests, a most holy privileged people. His children, judges of angels, says 1 Corinthians 6, inheritors of all things, as we just sang. God does more than forgive, verse 3. He sets apart the godly for himself. He honors them. He cherishes them based not on their performance, but on the righteous sacrifice of Christ. And thus, he hears us whenever we call upon him, not by our performance, but by the grace of God given to us, by the, by the, 
the privileged place that he places us in because of what Christ did for us. This is why David, despite all of his sin and the consequences of his sin, still has sort of a a holy swagger here about him in verse 2 when he says, how long are you going to be like this, boys? How long is this going to go on, this insanity? You can't touch me, not because of me, but because of God's grace to me. I'm bulletproof until I'm not. And this mercy and this grace, this is how David then gets oriented again to speak constructive words, not words of wrath, but, but David's no milk toast either. He's no coward. He speaks candid, straightforward words to his generation of angry people, pointing out their insanity and their instability. But to redeem, to redeem, this is how God works. He works through people, not perfect people, but redeemed people who speak words of redemption to a generation, to their generation, enslaved by anger, just like his. This is always how God works, redeeming the world through redeemed people, speaking words of redemption, the gospel. We only get oriented for that by remembering his mercy and his grace to us. Okay, so... How do we apply this to ourselves? How do we apply this to ourselves? Well, I'm going to do this in, in three different ways. A, a universal application, and then a male pattern version of, of the application, and then a female pattern version. They apply in both directions, but it's what I observe. First, the universal application. Verse 4 of our psalm is quoted again in the New Testament in Ephesians, verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 26 but with a fascinating twist there. Fascinating twist. In Psalm 4, David tells the men of rank to ponder on their beds, bottle it up until you know what to do that's actually constructive, not destructive. But in Ephesians, Paul says, be angry and do not sin and do not let the sun go down on your anger. Don't go to bed angry. David says, go to bed angry, bottle it up. David says, don't do that. Verse 27, give no opportunity to the devil. Ephesians 4, verse 27. David says, stew on it in your bed, and Paul says, don't you dare stew on it on your bed. (laughs) Okay, so what gives? (laughs) Why does Paul feel free to basically flip it over? Well, he does this because of what's changed between Psalm 4 and Ephesians 4. Christ has come and been crucified and been raised and been ascended to heaven, taking the throne as king over all, giving his spirit. And when he gave his spirit, he formed what? The church. The church at Pentecost. So whatever it is, whatever it is that displeases us, whatever it is, whatever you see out there that displeases you, that draws you to some form of anger, The answer has now come. The answer has now come. It's Christ. It's Christ. And his body now is the church on the earth. The the answer is, in some sense, the church. The church is the answer. Whatever it is that draws you to anger. Whatever it is, the one that David could only look forward to, 
to hazily and, and only see in part has now come in the flesh and he now reigns and his presence on earth, his kingdom is enlarging and advancing in the earth, his kingdom where all good comes, where every, every evil gets solved, it is expanding in the church. Thus Paul quotes this in the context of the peace and unity of the church. So if we cannot pursue unity in here, if we cannot achieve unity and peace in here, we have no ground to stand on. We have, no, we have no leg to stand on in pursuing peace out there because the answer is in here. The answer is in here. The church is the world's window to see into a peace that is only possible by being united together in one man, the Lord Jesus Christ, crucified and raised. We exist, we the church, we exist not for ourselves, but to bring grace and peace to the world. But how can we bring what we do not have to give in the first place? We the church, we become impotent and useless when we bicker and fight with each other at the foot of the cross. It is the most, it is the most ugly thing to God. In fact, did you know that uh, the scriptures say don't, grieve the Holy Spirit. We spoke about the Holy Spirit in Sunday school this morning. We often think that that phrase uh, relates to those times when, you know, I do the really bad sin, the really bad sin that really gets you. But most times when that's, when that's spoken of in Scripture, the context is God's people not getting along with each other, being in conflict, grading on each other, tearing each other down. So we must, we the church, the first application for us, if we, if we want peace with them ones out there, we must believe the gospel and believe what God has already done in the church and labor to possess and preserve the grace and the peace that God has brought in here. That is all of our responsibility. It requires hard work. It requires sacrifice. It requires remembering and preaching the gospel to ourselves all the time. Hard work, sacrifice, but then again, this is war. What did you expect? <laughs> okay. Well, now to the male pattern version of the application. Again, not that females don't need to hear this, but it's just what I observe in general. Guys, but everybody, a question, and you only get one second to think about this, okay? You only get one second. Well, I'm going with the male attention span, so I, <laughs> hey, I'm one of them, so let's be honest. Uh, has there ever been a time when the men of rank, the elites of your country, verse 2, have you ever, you ever had a time when they shame the things that should be honored and honor that which is shameful? Has there ever been a time when the elites, the high-ranking officials, would love to speak lots of words and none of them mean anything? They're vain, changing their definition, saying words that have as much substance as a belch in the wind. Have you ever lived in that sort of time? You only get one second. <laughs> Have you ever lived in a time when our elites not only lie, but seek after lies as if that's their job description? Have you ever experienced that? 
<laughs> I asked you guys this this, this weekend. All we, we just laughed. It's like, <laughs> yeah, I woke up today too. Yeah. Now, that anger, that, that displeasure that you feel about that, that's not wrong. That's not wrong. The question is, what do you do with it? What do you do with it? Do you stew on it and lose sleep over it and interrupt every conversation with it? Or, 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 do you walk in the steps of David who first remembers the gospel, who first turns toward God, who remembers what a lost soul he would be, how insane and crazy and filled with sin and abuse of people he would be, absent the intervening grace and mercy of God? Can you start there? Because, ironically, then and only then is David able and enabled and equipped to speak words of clarity. Words of clarity to his generation. Grace doesn't make him a pushover. It makes him resolute and candid. Resolute and candid. And that's because after thinking about the gospel, he's able to join God in his jolly laughter from heaven, as we saw in Psalm 2. He's able to put things in perspective. He's able to say, your path is insane. Not a good long-term strategy. But we men, we, we want to act. We, we want to move. We want to take hills. And again, that's it's not wrong. It's not wrong. But David says, until you know what the right movement is, the right act, what, what is actually constructive, ponder it on your bed. Ponder it on your bed. Worship God every Sunday and put your trust in the Lord in everything else. In other words, when the elites act stupidly or maliciously or both, don't take the bait. Don't take the bait. Don't spend all your time railing at the screen. Remember your God and ponder on your beds what to do next and don't do anything rash. Don't take their bait. In time, God will provide the constructive solution. It may be in the ballot booth. It may be in a mass revival that he pours out upon the people. It may be a collapse of some system of our society. Whatever it will be, David, because he keeps himself centered on God and the gospel, can look at even the the most idiotic or insidious acts of the elites and say, just another sign that God loves me and wants me to be happy. (laughs) Can you say that? Ironically, only when we can say that are we able with a jolly heart to do that which would be most constructive at the time. Well, ponder in your hearts, stuff it down, stuff it down until you have what is most constructive. And many times, many times, that which is most constructive comes by not only looking into the Word and not only praying about it, but by getting together with other brothers who are interested in doing the same thing and comparing notes and reflecting on what the other is thinking and talking about it over the word in prayer. Well, lastly, the the female version of this, the female pattern version of this, again, plenty of men need to hear this too. Um, But there is many a woman, when we think about anger, we think about foolish anger, Runaway emotions. There have been many a woman who has torn down her house by foolish anger. Proverbs 14.1 
What goes for men, again, goes for women here too. So how do you control your feelings instead of letting them control you? How do you do that? How do you, how do you keep from letting anger dominate you and dominate your household? Only, only by bringing them under the loving lordship of Christ. Only then. Yes, th- there, is an unhe- there is such a thing as an unhealthy bottling up of emotions. That is a thing. That is a thing. But far more often these days, we honor what is actually shameful, the, the, the pouring out of our emotions onto each other and making our emotions little gods running around trying to gain the high ground over each other to dominate each other. But God's word is clear. Either take action before the sun goes down or bottle them up, but bottle them up seasoned with the, with, with the, the sweet spices of God's mercy and his grace. Only then, only then, you, you won't die if you do that. You won't die if you bottle them up and let them be transformed in that bottle with, 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 with the herbs and spices of his mercy and his grace. If you let the gospel have reign over your emotions, if you trust God to provide for you the constructive path of action, not the tearing down of one's house, you, you will then not let bitterness and resentments build up within you, which can so easily happen, so easily happen. Hebrews 11 warns us against this. And, and when that happens, whole families, churches, even countries can be stained with, with, with the ugly stain of unholy anger and torn down. But our Lord came to do the exact opposite, to absorb the just wrath of God that we might live in peace with him and with each other. God does provide the way. He provides the way at the foot of the cross, and we must continue to go back all the time, bringing all of our lives, including our emotions, under his loving reign, listening to what he says and seeing what he does. And as we do, our emotions are transformed, our hearts are transformed, and we then live in more constructive ways where we were once tearing each other down. So if we follow this psalm and these principles, we we may come closer to David's experience that though Nothing in his situation, nothing in his context had actually changed. None of his circumstances had actually changed, but now David has changed by the end of the psalm. David has changed by simply remembering the God who was there. As he remembers the God who was there, he could really rest. Not the God that David made up in his head, the God of the Bible, the God who's actually there. David could go to sleep Though the elites were still lying and cheating, he could sleep with a smile on his face, knowing that the God of heaven was not sleeping, but laughing. Laughing at their shenanigans, laughing at their monkey shines, and exercising all of his sovereign power for David. For David. Because David had earned it? No. No. That's just who God is. That's just who God is. That's how strong his sovereign grace is to you, Christian. He will never leave you nor forsake you. This is a laughing, jolly God who exercises all of his sovereign power for us, all because of his mercy, all because of his gracious love. He loves you far more than you can imagine, far more than you can put into words. And he will never stop. He will never stop. 
and the cross is the proof of it. So we constantly bring ourselves back to the cross to remind ourselves of his love. We remember who this God is. We look up, we worship him, we trust him in everything, and then he will provide in all of that the constructive pathway to action to be the tools of his redemption in a world that so desperately needs it. (laughs) So desperately needs it. Well, I want to pray about that for myself, so let me pray about that now. I'll pray for you too. Oh, Father, please start with me in the applying of this sermon. Please grant us your spirit to work amongst us, to work within us, to transform us, make us people who remember who you are. Make us people who by faith, trust in your gospel and are so transformed not to be ignorant of the, the failings of the world, but to, re, to see them and experience clean displeasure to the darkness of the world and then to respond with constructive actions, actions that, yes, call out the insanity, but in the end, redeem from the darkness. Make us your tools of your redeeming sovereign grace. This is above my pay grade, all all of our pay grades. God, I'm, I'm praying this because we need you to do this within us. So will you please, will you please do this for the glory of your name among the nations, we pray. Amen. Well, receive the benediction. Um, you, you are... Well, I often say this because it's true. You, you are a most privileged people by the grace that God has lavished upon you sovereignly, all by his sovereign choice to you in, in magnificent love that we can only comprehend by looking to the cross. You, you are a most privileged people. So the benediction today is just simply go enjoying that splendid privilege that you have in your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, speaking constructive words of his redeeming grace to a fallen world. Go enjoying that. Amen.